Before we get into today's bonus, I want to warn you that this episode will contain explicit language due to the nature of some of the evidence in this case. And it is my belief that it is important to have this information included in order to maintain the context in which some of the content of this case is presented. I normally edit out foul language, so, you know, you can listen to the show anywhere without offending anyone, despite the subject matter. But this time, it's important for us to hear everything. Listener discretion is advised. Dreamers, I have really been enjoying the cases that we have been covering in North Carolina, and I'm not quite ready to leave just yet. There is a case that came in a close second to Zara Baker's, and it's unsolved. And though several of us, myself included, aren't the biggest fans of unsolved cases, if I have an occasion to share one now and again as a bonus, I will. I do want to be able to give those cases the time that they deserve, especially in a cold case as compelling as the one we are going to discuss today. Again, thank you all for voting for the North Carolina cases. I really enjoyed sharing Zara's story with you and remembering her and shining a light on cases like hers where abusers like her killer lurk among us while hiding their abuse behind closed doors with lies and manipulation. And of course, the Patreon bonus also out of North Carolina, the mysterious death of Ira Yarmolenko, which I put up in January for the $5 and up tiers on Patreon because I did put two bonuses out in the month of January. So that was sort of an extra perk, which I wish I had the time to do more often. But for all level supporters, we will always have at least one bonus a month. But this bonus today is not for Patreon. It's for everybody because like I said, it is unsolved and we really shouldn't be putting unsolved cases behind a paywall. So for the last and final story out of the state of North Carolina, we are bringing you this very special vacation series bonus of California Dreaming, The Tale of Faith Hedgepeth. Faith Danielle Hedgepeth was born September 26, 1992, in Warrington, North Carolina. She was recognized as a member of the Haliwa Saponi Native American tribe, and where she was born is considered a part of their tribe's traditional territory. Before Faith would turn one, her mother and father would divorce, and Faith would be raised by her mother, Connie. Connie has said that she named her daughter Faith because she felt like that's what she was going to need in order to raise her now four children with the added challenges of a husband and father who struggled with substance abuse. Faith was tremendously popular in high school. She was an honors student. She was a member of the cheerleading squad. She participated in numerous extracurricular activities, clubs, and organizations. She did so well she earned the Gates Millennium Scholarship to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Faith's father had gone there as well, but he ended up dropping out. And by the looks of it, Faith was on the path to becoming the first in her family to graduate from college. She had aspirations to one day either become a teacher or a pediatrician, 
having a desire either way to work with children in some capacity. Faith struggled, however, during her first two years at UNC Chapel Hill. She was not balancing her newfound social life with her class load very well and ended up on academic probation. She decided to take a break for the spring semester, though she did stay living in the area at an off-campus apartment, a complex located between Chapel Hill and Durham. She had a roommate named Karina Rosario, whom she met during her freshman year. Also living with them was Karina's boyfriend, Eric Takoy Jones. As soon as her financial aid would come through, Faith planned to relocate to a different apartment and begin attending classes for the upcoming fall semester. It's been reported that the relationship between Karina and Takoy Jones was tumultuous, and there were accusations of domestic violence, that Jones was abusive towards Karina, and she would eventually end their relationship. At some point during the early summer of 2012, Jones moved out of the apartment. On July 5th, Jones, who had already racked up an arrest earlier in the year on April 27, 2012, for possession of drug paraphernalia, he entered into the girl's apartment, broke into the bedroom where Karina was at, and reportedly pushed her down onto the ground. Then five days later on July 10th, Jones broke into the apartment again, forcing his way in, as Karina had the locks changed. This would be the event that would lead Faith to encourage Karina to obtain a restraining order against Jones. So the following day, on July 11th, Faith drove Karina to the Durham County Courthouse to file the order of protection against Jones to compel him to maintain his distance from her and her apartment. In it, noting multiple violent encounters that she experienced with Jones, including the two most recent break-ins. Some have speculated that Jones had a growing resentment towards Faith and didn't appreciate the influence he perceived she had over his relationship with Karina, and it is believed that he made at least one threat during a phone call with Faith that he would kill her if he was unable to reconcile with Karina. We will circle back to Jones a little bit later. The events on the afternoon of September 6, 2012, have been woven together based on interviews conducted with individuals who had confirmed contact with Faith throughout the day, and a rudimentary timeline of how the day unfolded came together. It started off pretty much like any other day. Faith had already begun the fall semester at UNC Chapel Hill. She was committed to reestablishing her good academic standing. She attended classes. She interacted with her friends. She talked to her family. And at approximately 5.45 p.m. that Thursday afternoon, Faith arrived at the Shadowwood Apartments to attend a rush event for her school's chapter of Alpha Pi Omega, which is historically a Native American sorority which Faith was hoping to be able to join. She had arrived a little bit early because she wasn't sure where the apartment complex was. So she waited in the car until a friend of hers arrived, Victoria Chavez, and the two went in together. 
she stayed at the Rush event for approximately one and a half hours, at which time she indicated that she needed to go work on a paper that she was writing, which involved the history of her tribe, the Haliwa Sapani tribe. Because Faith had taken a semester off, she doubled down on her commitment to reestablishing her grades and her academic standing. Faith and her roommate Karina headed over to the university's Davis Library so they could study, arriving there at approximately 8 p.m. that evening. Between 8.30 and 9 p.m., Faith and her dad, Roland, had a text message exchange. She told him about attending the sorority rush and expressed her hopes to be able to join. But based on his responses, or lack of responses, it isn't really clear. She texted her dad, asking him what was wrong. He would say that he doesn't really know how she knew that something was wrong, but he did say that he was in the middle of what he described as a crisis. Whatever crisis that was, he didn't elaborate, but he figured that he would give his daughter a call the following morning. But tomorrow would never come for faith. The last text Roland Hedgepith would ever receive from his daughter would say, Just have faith, Daddy. I promise it'll work out. And that was Faith's own little expression. Just have faith. Faith's friend, whom she went into the rush event with, Victoria, also had a text exchange with Faith that same evening. They discussed Alpha Pi Omega and the possibility of joining, and they talked about rushing. Faith really wanted to join that sorority and they made plans to hang out over the upcoming weekend. Victoria would receive her last text from Faith at 9.03 p.m., but those weekend plans would never come to fruition. Faith briefly left Karina at the library, but came back at approximately 11.30 p.m., at which time they went back to their apartment together, the Hawthorne at the View, which was about four miles away. They arrived at approximately midnight. About a half hour later, Faith and Karina left their apartments and headed to The Thrill, which was a nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill on East Rosemary Street, and it was an establishment that allowed in customers under the drinking age of 21. They arrived at the nightclub at approximately 12.40 a.m., and it was there they met up with two men who also lived in the Hawthorne at the View Apartments. One of the men is said to be a rapper, and the other man was a cousin of Karina's ex-boyfriend, Takoy Jones. The girls danced at the nightclub for about an hour and a half, at which time Karina began to complain of an upset stomach. Whether or not her upset stomach had anything to do with drinking is unclear, but I have read several reports that she did drink a little bit too much and began to not feel well. But it does not seem like the girls had very much to drink, at least Faith didn't. But like I said, that information is a little sketchy. They were underaged. It would later be determined that Faith did have a blood alcohol content of 0.02, which is well under the legal limit of 0.08, but then again, the legal limit for Faith would have been 0, .00, being that she was underage, so there's that. Anyway, 
Karina wasn't feeling well and told Faith that she wanted to go home. Surveillance cameras captured Faith and Karina leaving the nightclub at 2.06 in the morning, and these would be the last images of Faith seen alive ever captured. Both Faith and Karina were back at their apartment by 3 a.m. This is now the early morning hours of September 7, 2012. Another tenant of the apartment who lived directly below the girls reported that she was awake around that time and that she was watching TV. And it was about this time, perhaps a little bit later, that she heard a series of three thumping noises coming from the apartment above. She described these noises as sounding like a heavy bag being dropped or the sound of a large piece of furniture being overturned and landing with a thud onto the floor. The time that this neighbor reported hearing these sounds, Faith's Facebook page was being accessed as well. It is believed that Faith was sending out text messages at least until 3.30 in the morning, but the events that would follow would remain painfully unclear. At 3.40 a.m., there was a text message sent from Faith's phone to a number belonging to Brandon Edwards, a former boyfriend of Faith's, but I've also heard it's a love interest of Karina's. The text message read, quote, Hey B, can you come over please? Rosario needs you more, aha, you know, please let her know you care. Three minutes later, a follow-up text was sent from Faith's phone again to Brandon Edwards that only said the word then, T-H-A-N. It is believed to be a correction for the word aha in the previous text. So the text would have read, Hey B, can you come over here please? Rosario needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care. That text message, the word than, is the last activity that occurred on Faith's phone. Brandon Edwards did not reply to these text messages until 4.16 p.m., later that day and when he did answer he didn't seem to know who the texts were from as he asked who is this also it's important to note that Karina is being referred to in the text messages by her last name Rosario I'll talk more about the possible context of the text message a little bit later Around the same time, phone records indicate that Karina was attempting to call Brandon Edwards' phone, but he did not answer. Unable to reach Brandon, Karina called Jordan McCrary, a fellow UNC Chapel Hill student and soccer player that she knew. Though the exact nature of the relationship, whether it was a friendship or more than that, isn't clear. I've read both. I've read that they were romantically involved. I'm not really sure. But at 4.25 a.m., Karina left the apartment and got into Jordan McCrary's vehicle. Karina has stated that when she left the apartment at that time to meet with Jordan, it was her belief that Faith was asleep in her room. And when she left, she left the front door of the apartment unlocked. Jordan gave Karina a ride to the residence of another friend of hers, an acquaintance who lived on West Longview Street in Chapel Hill. According to Karina, she arrived there at 4.30 a.m. 
I find discrepancies in this timeline as I looked up these locations on Google Maps and from the Hawthorne on the view to West Longview Street is a five mile or eight kilometer drive or about a 13 minute drive. But Karina said she was driven there in five minutes. But she could just be estimating rounding up or rounding down. Whichever it was, it didn't seem as though she drove yet, so she may not be the greatest at estimating drive times as a more experienced driver may be. Anyway, Karina reported that she spent the remainder of the morning there at her acquaintance home on West Longview. I've also heard that she was taken to Jordan McCrary's place. I've heard both versions of the story reported. Whichever one is accurate, I'm not sure. But the main point of all of this is that she left the apartment with Faith inside. Whatever state she was in is not clear. And she left the door unlocked. Then, according to Karina's story, about six hours later, a little after 10.30 a.m., she began seeking to get a ride back to her apartment. She said first she attempted to call Faith, but she did not answer her phone. Karina then phoned another friend named Marisol Rangel, and it would be she who came to where Karina was and gave her a ride back to her place. When Karina and Marisol arrived back to the apartment complex, Marisol parked and accompanied Karina into her apartment. They entered around 11 a.m. As they went inside, Karina has said that she called out for faith, but received no response. Upon further investigation, the two friends discovered Faith in her bedroom. She was wrapped in a quilt or a comforter, covered in blood, and partially nude. Karina immediately called 911. I've listened to the 911 call, and the first time I heard it, I noted that Karina sounded really distraught and quite upset which would have been an expected response to finding your friend in the state in which she discovered faith. But when I did listen to it again, I felt like something sounded odd with the way that Karina said things, though I really kind of chalked it up to her being distressed and in shock. I did, however, find an analysis of the 911 call on blogspot.com, and I found it kind of interesting and I wanted to share that analysis with you because I'm kind of on the fence about the 911 call and what it all means. Karina calls 911 and the operator answers, Durham 911, where is your emergency? And obviously it's important to find out where the emergency is taking place. But sometimes when we listen to 911 calls, we analyze the answers that the callers give and they often reveal what the priority of the caller may be. Karina states, and mind you, she is sobbing through this whole entire conversation. Quote, Hi, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend is like unconscious. It's been speculated that Karina wanted it to be clear from the beginning that she was not inside the apartment, that she just walked in and that this was her priority, the first thing that she wanted police to know. And so in doing so, Karina has presented herself ahead of her friend, the victim who's covered in blood, and it leaves people wondering why. 
because maybe she wanted to make sure it was established that she wasn't at the scene until she called 911. It is noted that Karina doesn't seem to be in a state of urgency in getting help for Faith, but pointing out that she just walked in and her friend is unconscious. It also strikes observers as strange that she called it her apartment rather than our apartment. But that just might be nitpicky detail stuff. I'll talk more about that in a minute. The dispatcher says, Okay, what is your address, ma'am? So this is the operator affirming that she's understood that Karina wasn't home and she needs to know where this emergency is taking place. Karina answered this question by stating, I live at the Hawthorne on the View. It is noted again that Karina is talking about herself and where she lives as opposed to where the victim is or where they are or where they live and who needs the help. But again, this could just be a normal response to the question of what's your address. Is it weird that she isn't saying we? I don't think I find it all that strange. But... Karina still isn't giving the address, which is causing delays. And it's hard to say how we would react as a young college student having walked in on something like this. But generally, a caller would give the location right away to facilitate the arrival of emergency personnel, would give the information as to what's wrong and asking and sometimes begging for help for the victim. But instead, it's been pointed out that Karina has made this call all about herself thus far and it's concerning for some. And again, I'm not really sure if this is relevant or not. For the third time, the dispatcher requested the location by stating, give me the address. And it is becoming imperative, and she is not getting the information that she needs so far in this call. And Karina answered, quote, I just moved here. I'm going to have to get it. Oh, God, it's um 5639 Old Chapel Hill Road in Durham. In this statement, Karina gave the explanation as to why the address has not been given in a timely manner, and it makes sense to me. The dispatcher asked her to repeat to make sure that it's correct, and Karina repeats and gives her the apartment number. And when the dispatcher asks for the number that she's calling from, she gives that information as well. The dispatcher then asked, Okay, you say your friend is unconscious. Karina answered, She's unconscious. I just walked into the apartment and there is looks like there's blood everywhere. Again, it's noted that Karina is reiterating that she just walked into the apartment and it could be viewed as taking priority over the state in which her friend is in, which is obviously serious as she says that there's blood everywhere. Is Karina worried about whether or not it's established that she was in the apartment And does she need to make sure that police know that whatever happened to Faith, that she wasn't there? Perhaps she might have a fear of getting in trouble. And it is noted that there is a lack of wanting to commit to this statement about the blood. Instead of stating with certainty that there is blood everywhere, she states that it looks like that there's blood everywhere. Now again, we're talking about a young person who has probably never seen blood anywhere but on TV and in movies. I could see myself being uncertain in a moment like this as well. The dispatcher then states, Okay, listen to me, listen to me. Somebody's already sending an ambulance, okay? I need to get some information from you and I'm going to need your help. I'm going to tell you how to help her, okay? 
It is noted that Karina has not yet asked for help at any point during this phone call. But perhaps, does Karina know or can she tell that Faith is beyond help? Either way, Karina agrees. The dispatcher asked how old she is and Karina answered that she's 19. The dispatcher says, okay. Then Karina states, I don't know. I don't want to touch her, but... So this could mean that Karina doesn't want to render first aid as it seems as though she knows that she's going to be asked to do so. But it could be perhaps she can see or knows that faith is beyond resuscitation. It would make sense if Karina thought or knew that faith was dead in general people don't like to touch dead bodies. And that's kind of sort of what I'm hearing here. The dispatcher then says, listen to me. Is she breathing? To which Karina answered, I don't know. The dispatcher tells her, you need to check and see if she's breathing. And Karina says, K, I don't think so. I don't think so. The dispatcher says, okay, listen to me. And Karina cuts her off and says, there's blood everywhere. And the dispatcher says, there's what? And Karina answered, there's blood everywhere. The dispatcher says, okay, and Karina again says, I don't know what happened. Okay, this statement, that she doesn't know what happened, is this concerning to any of you? When a person offers up statements of negation, it's often viewed as a red flag, especially since she wasn't asked what happened, and it's the second statement offered in the negative about the situation that she wasn't home and she doesn't know what happened. This also could be out of fear of being blamed for something, and I can understand that being a very real fear. This is a very traumatic situation. Next, the dispatcher asked, okay, is she on her back? Is she on her laying on her stomach? And Karina answered, she's on, she's on her back, but like, I think she fell off the bed because she's like off the bed. There's blood all over the pillows, like in the comforter, and I just don't know what happened. It's been noted that Karina is theorizing as to what happened at the scene while the dispatcher is trying to give her first aid instructions. Karina repeated that she doesn't know what happened. And we may wonder why, though I could see this being out of sheer confusion as to what's going on. The dispatcher says next, Okay, all right, listen to me. And Karina asks, is someone coming? Which is a valid question. The dispatcher states, yes, I've got someone coming. I've got somebody coming. I need for you to help her. I need you to go up to her. We need to see if she's breathing or not, okay? Karina states, I don't think so. The dispatcher then says, okay, listen to me. Go up. The paramedics are on the way. I want you to stay on the line. I'm going to tell you what to do next, all right? Are you right by her now? Karina, yes. Dispatcher, okay. Listen carefully. Karina says, she's not moving. The dispatcher says, she's not moving, okay. And Karina says, no. The dispatcher says, okay. Touch her arm. And tell me, how does she feel? 
Karina says she's not moving. The dispatcher then says, okay, ma'am, we need to find out if we can help her or not. You've got to help, you know, do as I'm asking so we can help her, all right? Karina says, okay. The dispatcher says, okay, if you can lay her flat on her back, remove any pillows. Karina says, lay her flat on her back. And the dispatcher says, flat on her back, remove any pillows. Karina says, okay. The dispatcher says, okay, kneel next to her and look in her mouth for food or vomit. And Karina says, there's blood everywhere. The dispatcher says, okay, kneel next to her, look in her mouth for food or vomit. And Karina is continuing to sob at this point. And she says, she's covered in blood, I don't. And the dispatcher cuts her off and says, listen to me, what's your name? And Karina says, Karina, I'm sorry, I'm really trying. There's blood everywhere. I don't know where it came from. Now, it's been noted that the I'm sorry statement is often viewed suspiciously in 911 calls, like, what are you sorry about? But I don't think that there's anything weird about Karina's apology in the moment. She's speaking to someone who was in a position of authority and is having difficulty complying with instructions because of the situation at hand. Again, the negation, I don't know where the blood is coming from, can be concerning. But to me, it can be viewed as a genuine observation. Remember in our Daniel Wozniak episode on Patreon? For those who listened or those who are familiar with the case, he told officers that he saw two gunshot wounds to the head. Well, that would have been something a person wandering into a crime scene would not have known unless he put the two bullets into the victim's head. It's hard to tell where the blood is coming from if there's blood everywhere. I've never seen anything like this in real life, so I can't imagine what Karina is looking at and what this moment would feel like. Remember, Faith's been bludgeoned about the head, and the dispatcher is telling her to look in her mouth, and there's blood literally everywhere. The dispatcher then says, Listen to me, all right? Listen to me. When you touch her, how does she feel? Does she feel warm? Karina pauses and then says, No, she feels cold. And the dispatcher says, She feels cold? Okay. Karina says, Yes. And the dispatcher says, Okay, all right. Don't touch anything else. Don't touch anything else, okay? The dispatcher has realized that the call has not been long enough for the victim to turn cold to the touch and now knows that she needs to preserve the crime scene. Karina next says, hurry. The dispatcher says, okay, they're on their way. I've got police on the way to you. I've got medics on the way to you. Karina says, I can't believe this. The dispatcher says, okay, what room is she in? And Karina says, she's in my bedroom. The dispatcher says, okay, I want you to go back into the living room, okay? The next thing that Karina says is kind of interesting. She states, quote, I don't know what's going on. Like there's stuff in my room that like wasn't there before. It looks like someone came in here. There is reason to believe that more questions need to be asked of Karina based solely on this statement. Karina seems pretty distraught for the duration of the call, and it strikes people as to how she is having the presence of mind to take note of the fact that there was stuff in her room that wasn't there before. 
And what does she mean by stuff? She points out that it looks like someone's been there, which obviously someone was in order to render Faith dead, right? And again, she pointed out that she doesn't know what's going on. The dispatcher replied, okay, okay, to which Karina says it really does, which may give some the idea that she needs to be persuasive for some reason. And also notice that she's talking about her room and not Faith, who is in pretty bad way at the moment. Karina says it looks like someone came in here because... But the dispatcher cuts her off and says, Okay, I don't... Listen to me. Don't touch anything in the room. And Karina answered, I'm not touching. The dispatcher then says, I want you to leave that room and go into the living room. You need to make sure the door is unlocked so someone can get in. So the medics and the police can get in when they get there. And Karina says, it's unlocked. When are they going to get here, though? And the dispatcher says, they're on their way, honey. They're coming as fast as they can. You could just stay on the phone with me, all right? And Karina says, I am. And the dispatcher asks her again, okay, tell me what your name is. Karina does not answer this question and says, it looks like someone had been in there because she's not like this at all. I don't know how she was sleeping Again, Karina's going back to explaining that someone has been there. But maybe it's to explain that it's weird that Faith would be in the room sleeping in there. But it's not clear as to what she's talking about. The dispatcher says, you just sit down on the couch and don't touch anything. You just sit down. And Karina says, I'm not touching anything. And the dispatcher says, okay, I just want you to sit down because the police and the medics are going to be there. They're coming as fast as they can. You just stay on the phone with me. Stay on the phone with me. Karina asks, are you sure they're coming? And the dispatcher says, yes, ma'am, they're on their way. And Karina says, I just can't believe this. I know someone had to have been in there. Needing the reassurance that police are coming and knowing that someone has been there sounds like Karina might be starting to have a fear of an unknown assailant. The dispatcher then says, okay, we've got first responders on the way. The fire truck is coming. There's a medic coming and the sheriff's department is on their way to you. And Karina says, okay. And the dispatcher says, you just stay on the phone with me until somebody gets there with you. And Karina says, okay. And the dispatcher says, how old are you, Karina? I'm 20. You're 20? Okay, hun. You're doing all right. Just stay on. And then Karina says, I see the police. You see the police? Yes. Okay. Let me know when they get in there with you and you could talk to them, okay? I just don't want you to be alone right now. Are they in there with you? Are they coming in? Karina says, yes. Thank you. And the dispatcher says, okay. Bye-bye. The analysis of the call on Blogspot suggests that the caller and the killer have a connection. This, of course, is highly speculative, but a lot of people have speculated this. The caller seems overly concerned with her own alibi, more so than getting help for the victim. If she's afraid of being blamed, then should this be explored further? Sure. She's going to be looked at and investigated anyway, and she probably knows this. Karina seems to know that the victim is beyond the need of medical intervention. She does not offer any information in the way of the victim, 
she doesn't even ever say her name, nor does she ever ask for any help for the victim. She distances herself from committing to the fact that blood was shed, and this may be a form of minimizing. And it's noted that when she's speaking about the killer, most people defer to a male pronoun, but Karina never does this. Her references in the call remain gender neutral, which some think is a way of covering for a known assailant, but that too is speculative. All in all, the language in which Karina speaks in her 911 call has some feeling that she has some knowledge or association with the killer. I've listened to the call numerous times, and Karina genuinely sounds completely distraught and confused and shocked. She is sobbing through the entire call, and it's very emotional and very heart-wrenching. Keeping in mind, she is a 20-year-old that just found her best friend and roommate dead in their apartment. I really can't judge her language or choice of words. Young people can be self-centric. People talk about the rest of the world from their own perspective. She's on the phone with a stranger. She might not say our apartment because she's talking one-on-one to someone else. In the context of the conversation between Karina and the dispatcher, this isn't their apartment that she's conversing about. She's essentially telling a stranger about her apartment. And when she says my friend, if she were to say Faith, she knows ahead of time that the operator isn't going to know who Faith is. But the operator will know who my friend is relative to Karina, the person on the phone. I guess the best way to understand Karina's choice of words is to put the conversation into a different context. Say I called up one of my dreamers. Yes, you listening. You know me, right? On a limited basis. You don't know my living situation. You don't know my day-to-day life. But say I picked up the phone to talk to you and you answered and said hello. And I said, hey, I wanted to call you and tell you what just happened. I just walked into my house and I found my friend lying on the floor. But then, what if I reworded it in this way? Hey, I just walked into our house and found Faith lying on the floor. Remember, you don't know who our is in this, and you don't know who Faith is. But in my first rendition, you get the gist of what I'm saying. Because that's how I would word things in a normal conversation with you. Someone who has limited knowledge of my life in general, or in the case of the dispatcher, absolutely zero knowledge of Karina's life. So, I wanted to do a little speculating up to this point. I found a couple of things very strange, and it's probably only going to get stranger, but I have questions already. What is the deal with those text messages coming from Faith's phone to her quote-unquote ex-boyfriend, Brandon Edwards? The, hey, B, can you come over, please? Rosario needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care. My first inclination is that it's drunk texting. But then was Faith drunk? I noted earlier that her blood alcohol content was later determined to be 0.02. Why is Faith sending Brandon this text, talking about her roommate to her ex-boyfriend? That's weird, right? And then, what if it wasn't Faith sending the text? Could it have been Karina? Remember, her phone records indicate that she was calling Brandon's phone around the same time that the texts were being sent, but he didn't answer either one. Why is Karina calling Faith's ex-boyfriend at the same time he's receiving text messages from Faith? 
Better yet, why is she calling him, period? Maybe they're friends? Maybe Karina is drunk dialing? It would make sense that she would be the one who was inebriated because she was the one who wasn't feeling well and wanted to go home, right? But it's strange that Faith is texting him to come over for Karina because she needs him at the same time that Karina is calling him. And this has led me to speculate that it is Karina who is using both phones to text from Faith's and call from her own. I'm trying to think about it. Would I be texting an ex-boyfriend at 3.40 in the morning because my roommate needs him more than he knows? That's so bizarre to me. And why would my roommate be calling my ex-boyfriend when he's not responding? And then it seems from his reply where he asks, who is this? that he's just as confused. This could be a couple of things. Maybe he didn't know Faith's number. Maybe he didn't have it programmed into his phone. Maybe he deleted it when they broke up, or perhaps she changed her number since they were together. Or maybe he knew it was Faith's number, and he was perplexed by the message that he received and felt it was strange enough for him to not believe it was Faith texting him. And then he's getting calls from Karina's phone, which he isn't answering. And it seemed by this point, Karina, having failed to get in touch with Brandon, started dialing her other friend, Jordan McCrary, the soccer player. And he answered. And he came over and gave her a ride. Now this raises the question for me. Why is Karina trying to leave the apartment at this hour? And she seems determined to do so, right? It seems as though she was trying to get a ride from Brandon first. Maybe she felt as though she would have a hard time finding anyone who was going to be willing to give her a ride at that time in the morning. So she thought maybe Brandon would be willing to since he had once a close relationship with Faith and that he'd want to come over and help. But whatever Brandon was up to, probably sleeping, he didn't come. But Jordan did. He was compelled enough by Karina's calls to drive over there and pick her up sometime around 4.25 in the morning. And then, when Karina left, she admittedly left their front door unlocked. Which seems extremely dangerous to me, being two young girls living in this apartment complex. This isn't the 1970s, where everybody left their doors unlocked and their keys in their car, right? I think I speak for many, if not all of us, that... When we leave, we lock our doors, especially when our roommate is presumably asleep, which is what her statement was. She assumed Faith was asleep. I'm sorry, but we're talking about best girlfriends here. I cannot imagine anyone that I know or any of my friends leaving the door unlocked with someone asleep. Unless maybe you're the parents of Madeline McCann or something, but that's a whole other mess, right? No, just no. We don't do that. So why would she leave the front door unlocked? Because there's nothing inside or nobody's safety to worry about? Or was she leaving it open for somebody to gain entry? Remember, we are talking about a young woman who just got a restraining order against an ex-boyfriend two months earlier. She even had the locks changed. For her to leave the apartment, to leave the door unlocked is very very concerning to me and then Jordan gave Karina a ride to a friend of hers or perhaps his place five miles away 
and Karina for some reason decided to stay there for the remainder of the morning instead of her own apartment. Remember, she had spent the entire evening with Faith. They went to study together at the library, they went back to their apartment together, they went to the nightclub together, and then they came home together. Why was Karina looking for a ride out of the apartment? And why did she spend the next six hours at her friend's house rather than her own home? Was it because something happened or was going to happen at her place that she didn't want to be present for? But then, when I was in college, I regularly crashed at my friend's places when we went out. But I never came home first and left an hour or two later to crash elsewhere. If I went home, I crashed at home. If I crashed at a friend's, it was because I didn't go home or I didn't want to go home, or I was too tired to go home. Now, if I was home, and then I left, and then someone got murdered, yeah, that would be weird. Now, as I've said, I've seen another report that stated Karina was taken to Jordan's home. Now, if this was the case, then this may be starting to look like Karina having spent the evening looking for a hookup, maybe? I've heard some speculation that's what all the texting that was going on with Faith earlier in the evening may have been about, that either one or both of them was calling and texting around to guys that they've known in some capacity, whether they be former, current, or potential romantic interests. There was apparently no shortage of guys, as both girls did indeed attract men quite easily. But then this takes me back to Brandon. Why would both of them be trying to contact him if Faith was the one that had been seeing him in some capacity first? I speculated that maybe Karina was texting him from Faith's phone and then calling him from her own phone. It all just seems kind of strange to me. And I haven't really been able to shake the idea that Karina had some knowledge of what happened to Faith just due to the fact that she removed herself from the scene. It's also worth mentioning that Jordan is one of, I believe, two individuals at least linked to Karina and Faith that have refused to submit a sample for DNA testing. But I'm thinking by now, if Jordan was being seriously looked at as a suspect in Faith's murder, then investigators would have placed him under surveillance, surreptitiously collected an item that Jordan discarded that would have had his DNA on it and tested it by now. Then again, the Chapel Hill Police Department has been criticized for several missteps in the investigation into Faith's murder. In 2016, Jordan McCrary was drafted 10th overall in the 2016 Major League Soccer Super Draft. He's currently playing on the Seattle Sounders. Anyway, back to the roommates. I've heard speculation that there may have been some elements of jealousy involved, And I will circle back to that a little bit later when we talk about some of the evidence that was found at the scene. Another detail about Karina's actions on this morning was the fact that when she returned to her apartment, she got a ride from her friend, Marisol Rangel. I've wondered why she wasn't able to get a ride back from the person who picked her up in the first place, Jordan. Maybe he had classes that morning. But if Karina was at his house... Why wouldn't he drop her back off at her place before he left for class or whatever he needed to do? Either way, she got a ride from Marisol, and it is my understanding that she was good friends with both Faith and Karina. 
But when Marisol and Karina got to the apartment, Marisol didn't simply drop Karina off. She parked and came inside with Karina, and the two entered the apartment at approximately 11 a.m. I probably wouldn't have thought much of Marisol coming in if I didn't know what they were going to find once they entered the apartment. I can't help but wonder if Karina asked Marisol to come in, if this was something out of the ordinary, or if Marisol would have normally come in for a visit. I can't think of a case specifically off the top of my head, but this isn't the first time that I've seen when a suspect brought a friend or a coworker with them to go check on someone who's failed to show up or is not answering their phone so that they would have someone with them when the time came to make a gruesome discovery, you know? And another thing that kind of struck me, when Karina made the 911 call, she's the only person heard on the line. There is speculation that it wasn't her, but I don't see what difference it would have really made if it was her or Marisol but eventually the caller would identify herself as Karina Rosario. But there is no other voices heard. Marisol isn't heard in the background, talking or crying or screaming or whatever. And Karina never says anything to anyone else but to the 911 dispatcher. Sometimes when we hear 911 calls and a scene is chaotic, if two or more people happen upon the scene... We hear the individuals on the line talking back and forth in the recording. But this call is very quiet. It's just Karina sobbing. And for the duration of the call, I've wondered what Marisol was doing. She said in interviews that she was there. So whatever the case, Karina was not going to discover Faith's lifeless body alone, whether it was by chance or by design. From the onset, the Chapel Hill Police Department treated Faith's murder investigation differently, starting with refusing to speak publicly about the details regarding the case, which was unusual. As a matter of fact, a court order was obtained to seal all records as to any information gathered during the course of the investigation. At first glance, when I read this detail, I didn't think too much of it, as we've heard of investigations being kept close to the vest many times before. But I dug a little deeper to see what the implications of this meant for the case and for the community. And I found an article at synapativist.com written by Chelsea Delaney. And it took the police department to task for sealing everything, even from the family, leaving everyone to wonder. You see, Faith's case grew cold. If you ask the Chapel Hill Police Department, it's never gone cold, but... To me, at this point, more than six years later, it's cold. And questions then and questions now were going unanswered. And the Chapel Hill Police Department would not be forthcoming about the investigation. The public would not be granted access to any information regarding the case at first. Following Faith's murder, there were search warrants issued. News of Karina's 911 call Information about the DNA evidence recovered at the scene, all of it was being kept sealed by court order. That is until two days before the second anniversary of Faith's murder. The media had filed a motion with the county court to unseal the records and their motion was granted. Until that point, everyone, 
including Faith's family, had no idea what was going on and what, if anything, the Chapel Hill police knew regarding the case. Once the records became unsealed, the timeline of events leading up to Faith's death were revealed, and I have gone over that aspect of this case already. It was also revealed, to some looking at the case, that the Chapel Hill Police Department may have been lacking not only in staffing resources, but also any type of significant experience in homicide investigation, and that they also failed to gather potential important pieces of evidence. And it is believed that the Chapel Hill Police's initial investigation into Faith's murder moved at a snail's pace. And many have wondered if the department may have been ill-equipped to lead an investigation like this to begin with. And I'm pretty sure that the department is not happy being criticized and second-guessed in this manner. Within days of Faith's death, records were sealed, and this included the 911 call and search warrants. From that point forward, every month and a half to two months, the documents were resealed per request of the Superior Court by either the town of Chapel Hill or the Durham County District Attorney's Office. And these hearings were conducted without anyone, not the public, not the media. Nobody was present when these motions were heard. This frustrated the local media who were anxious for news as to progress in the case. Mike Tadich, an attorney representing several local media organizations, stated, quote, In the other 22 murders in Durham County in 2012, none of them were sealed. Things like search warrants were easily accessible. No one has articulated what is different about this case that would warrant such an overreaching sealing. In the weeks following Faith's death, the media began to question the Durham County Court officials for public hearings when it came to the sealings of the records in her case. They sent letters, they met with the DA, they sent emails asking to be notified when the hearings would be taking place, but they were never notified. On March 5, 2012, Tadich filed a motion in Durham County Court for all records to be unsealed. In response to this, Assistant DA Charlene Franks relinquished some basic information on the case, including some dates that the warrants were issued, what they were for, and the reasons for motioning for the records to be sealed. Tadich also questioned why records were sealed preemptively before the records actually existed, stating, quote, Here it appears that they are saying, Oh, we're going to get this and that before they do. No, that is not the way it should have been done. To ask the court to look into a crystal ball and say, This is what you might find does not fit with the case law. The motion to unseal the records was heard on March 19, 2012. The DA's office argued that the case was still hot and investigators have had recent breaks that unsealing the records would jeopardize. The judge requested to see all records in the case, everything. He wanted it all collected and put into a folder for him to review before he made his decision. In the meantime, all the records were resealed. According to interviews with neighbors, they got the feeling that the crime scene wasn't exactly thoroughly investigated. The building was normally quiet, and to some neighbors, the crime scene appeared strange. Faith's apartment was searched, but it did not seem like the search expanded beyond that. Neighbors reported not seeing any searching going on in the woods adjacent to the apartment complex, 
and according to records, only Faith's apartment and one other apartment was searched. And by the way, I do believe that that was the apartment that Takoy Jones moved to after he moved out of the girl's apartment. Faith's car was also left in the parking lot, and it was not immediately processed or searched for evidence either. Officers also did not go door-to-door to interview neighbors. They also did not bring in search dogs. Those who were there that day, watching the investigation unfold, it looked as though they wrapped up their case pretty quickly considering a brutal murder had taken place there. And then, there was no arrest. For weeks. And then for months. And then, as we sit here today, for years. This fall will mark seven years since Faith's murder. And as of today, it remains unsolved. About a month after Faith's murder, a neighbor reported that the Chapel Hill police returned to the apartment and began asking men who lived in the building, as well as ones nearby, for DNA swabs. It's believed that they collected about a couple dozen or so swabs, but some people have moved out since her death. And of the women who lived in the complex, police were asking if they lived alone, likely to see if anyone may have come and gone who may be of interest. After that, it appears that the investigation started to drag. Police sporadically issued search warrants for Faith's Facebook page, then for Karina's Facebook page, then for Faith's bank accounts, and then some months later they issued search warrants for Faith's and Karina's computers. Police occasionally stopped by the apartment to ask a few questions, mainly to people who still live there, if there was anything that they remembered and forgot to mention. Since this investigation began, thousands of people have been spoken to about the case, and hundreds of DNA samples have been taken and tested against the semen found at the scene, and a match has yet to be found. Even the people close to Faith and her circle of friends, including boyfriends and ex-boyfriends alike, some gave samples willingly, while some were reluctant at first but eventually complied. Nobody, even the likeliest of suspects, was found to be a match. So, a guy named George King, he owns George's Towing and Recovery, and he tows for the parking lot of the Thrill Nightclub, the place that Faith and Karina went to prior to going home the morning that Faith was murdered. King had video cameras set up around the perimeter of the building, trained on the parking lot. And it is likely that he had footage of Faith at the Thrill nightclub that evening. But King wasn't contacted by police for the footage of the parking lot. At least, not until 19 months later. A Chapel Hill police investigator called to ask about the surveillance footage. King stated, quote, Whatever video we had is gone now. It would have been phenomenal if we had known and we had been able to run the video and found something that helped out. Nobody told me anything about it. How does something like this happen? We are going to talk about in a little bit a possible altercation that occurred at the nightclub that quite possibly could have spilled out into the parking lot. But... We'll never know because 
this surveillance footage is gone. The Chapel Hill Police Department has seen 10 murders in the past 10 years. And a fully staffed Chapel Hill Police Department consists of 10 officers. One is a crime scene evidence specialist. One is a lieutenant. And one is a sergeant. Seven are assigned to cases that come into the department. And they are mostly felonies like financial crimes, burglaries, robberies, and serious assaults. So by the fall of 2013, they requested help with the investigation from the State Bureau of Investigation. And the media attorney, Tadich, believes that the court-ordered sealings of the case and the police refusing to address the media were an attempt to cover up the mistakes that police made in Faith's investigation. But the police remain confident that Faith's case will be solved, citing the ongoing training that Chapel Hill police have undergone ever since, stating, quote, We have a lot of training opportunities. We have a lot of resources we tend to utilize. We utilize those resources when we need to. While we don't have a huge number of investigators, we do have experience in investigating homicides. In September of 2014, about 300 pages of court documents in Faith's case were finally released, including her autopsy report, which revealed that Faith died as a result of a severe beating to the head. She suffered extensive skull fractures as well as numerous cuts and contusions on her face and head, and she was also beaten about the arms and legs. Investigators did not reveal at first whether or not Faith was sexually assaulted, though they did indicate in January of 2013 that they did find male DNA on the scene. It was later revealed that Faith was raped, and she was positioned on the floor, her shirt was pulled up, and she was nude from the waist down, and at least a portion of the DNA evidence recovered came from semen recovered from the scene. I was a little bit confused about the DNA and where it was found and the nature of the sexual assault on Faith. I had difficulty locating the autopsy online, and all I found were articles that discussed the autopsy. So I ended up reaching out to Stephen Pacheco over at Trace Evidence Podcast as he covered Faith's case some time ago, and he is a resident of North Carolina himself. And I had this conversation with him that was really kind of gross to talk about, but bless his heart, he talked about it with me anyway. And the next minute or so is going to be a little uncomfortable, but I'm having a really hard time with a lot of these small but important details of Faith's murder. So it's been reported that Faith was raped, but there was a used tampon found on or near the bed where the assault took place. And it got me wondering if Faith's killer raped her even though he saw that she was menstruating. And I wondered where the semen was actually found and where it was swabbed from. I got hung up on this for a while, just like many aspects of the case. But after I talked it out with Stephen, it seems as though the simple answer is that she was raped and the DNA was, in the report of the investigators, semen that was recovered from a rape kit. And that's about as specific as I could find. The autopsy said that a bottle that was normally kept in the kitchen was found in the bedroom with tissue fragments and DNA on it. Search warrants say that a wine bottle and a Bacardi bottle were collected into evidence at the scene. This Bacardi bottle is believed to be the item that was used to bludgeon Faith to death. 
in this, dreamers, is a very up-close and personal way of killing someone. And it is extremely violent. And it lends to the narrative that it was someone who had a lot of rage towards Faith. And the profile of the person who investigators believe killed her indicates that it was likely someone who knew her and knew her well. Since Faith's killing, hundreds of men have been tested and all have been eliminated, including the ex-boyfriend of Faith's roommate, Takoy Jones, and the man that they were trying to contact the morning that Faith was killed, Brandon Edwards. It's a frustrating aspect of this case because the killing seems so personal, but if investigators have been diligent in their work on this case, then every single person who knew Faith should have been tested by now, and nobody's been found to be a match. In September of 2016, investigators sent the DNA that they believe belongs to Faith's killer recovered from the crime scene to Parabon Nanolabs in Reston, Virginia, and a computer-generated composite sketch of what is predicted that the killer looks like based on DNA phenotyping was generated. It's the science of predicting physical appearance such as eye color, hair color, skin color, possible freckling, face morphology, and ancestry. I will post the results of this composite sketch after this episode goes live. They are confident that the suspect is not white, nor is he African American. They believe the person to be a mixture of Native American or a mix of European or Latino. Now we have to discuss a couple of very important aspects of Faith's case. On the bed next to her body was a handwritten note that was sloppily written on a bag from a fast food restaurant. It says on it in all caps, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. It was written with a ballpoint pen and it was found that the part of the bag that it was written on was from the bottom of the bag that was torn off from the rest of it. It is believed to have been from a restaurant in Chapel Hill called Time Out. The DNA of the killer was found on both the note and the pen. Crime Watch Daily had an expert look at pictures of the note because it did not have any blood on it and there was blood splattered all over the room. The expert suggested that it was not written near the scene of the killing or it was written before the killing. It's also been speculated that the note may have been written after the killer washed his hands and then wrote the note, suggesting that he was not in a hurry to leave the scene of the crime. Because the writing is so sloppy, the expert also suggested that the writer may have used their non-dominant hand to pen the note in order to disguise their handwriting. And because the writer suggested that they were thought to be called stupid, that they were enraged at the time of the killing, and while writing the note. So there are some theories about this note. Some have suggested that maybe the words are meant to be read in a different order than they appear. It said, I'm not stupid, jealous, bitch. Maybe it's meant to say, I'm not jealous, stupid, bitch. It's also been speculated that perhaps there was more than one writer and that maybe it wasn't all written at the same time. To some, stupid looks like it may have been written separately because it seems to be written more clearly and off to the side. And it's been speculated that perhaps the person who wrote stupid may have been female 
or was someone in more of a calm state than the person who wrote the rest of the note. Some believe the entire note was written by a female. Then the reason for the note seems murky as well. I mean, why leave a note next to a body that's dead, ostensibly written to her, as she's not going to be around to see it, right? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But hearkening back again to our Patreon bonus on Daniel Wozniak, there was a note written at the scene there as well, but it was one that was not directed towards the victim. I mean, even though it was all false and made up, the note was meant to be read by someone other than the victim. The note at the scene of Faith's murder appears to be a message sent directly to Faith. But then that would be leaving kind of an incriminating piece of evidence behind, especially if it were to become known that someone had taken an issue with Faith, a serious issue that may involve a guy, which is what the note insinuates, that the motive for the killing may be jealousy. Then it could be just a red herring, meant to throw off the investigators and to confuse the scene. If jealousy was the motive, then the first person that comes to mind is the man that Faith was supposedly texting and Karina was calling the morning that the girls arrived back from the Thrill nightclub, Brandon Edwards. It confuses me as to why both of them would be trying to get in contact with him. And I wonder if there was an issue between the friends that kind of boiled over into an argument. And this was the precipitating factor that led to Karina wanting to leave suddenly. I've heard it reported that Brandon had a shady roommate, someone involved in some criminal activity, and he is one person who I believe has not made his DNA available for testing in this case. And now we gotta talk about a voicemail. On the morning Faith was killed, her phone seemingly pocket-dialed a friend of hers and left a somewhat lengthy voicemail on her phone. And some feel that this voicemail is likely a recording of the actual killing. The conversation left on the voicemail appears to be between at least three individuals, possibly four, two females, one or two males, and one of the females is believed to be Faith. And it seems as though there's some kind of music or rapping going on in the background during some parts of it. But there's a problem with this. The voicemail is timestamped to have been left at 1.23 in the morning, and that would have placed Faith still at the Thrill nightclub. Surveillance video of her and Karina show them leaving at 2.06 a.m. The audio of this voicemail is very poor quality. It's pretty much inaudible, and police did not feel it provided very much in the way of useful evidence or information. You may have listened to parts of this audio, and you know it's hard to make out anything that's being said. But an audio expert named Arlo West was hired to enhance the recording, and he's a specialist in this type of work. He came up with a pretty comprehensive report of what he thought was being said on a good portion of the recording, though much of it is still inaudible. I'm going to share his findings with you here. However, this voicemail is profanity-laden. And because if you feel this voicemail is pertinent to Faith's case, I'm going to leave the foul language in. 
because what can be heard doesn't make a whole lot of sense to begin with. And if I redact the foul language, it's going to be even worse. So this is your explicit language warning. Much of it is inaudible, and I am going to read the words that were able to be deciphered by Arlo West, and I'm going to pause at the sentence fragments where the words become unintelligible. This conversation is going to be between a female, a male, another female, possibly another male. And it is believed that one of the females is Faith, as this call does come from her phone. Female, you want to mess with my boyfriend? Faith, I don't want to, Rosie. Female, oh right, it's not his fault. Male, all of this bullshit, you're going to answer to. Female, fuck you, I'm pissed. Male, good thing, Dave's house. It would be a broadcast big mic. Female, you motherfucker. Faith, no. Female, you were just bullshitting. Male, what kind of person lie? Faith, even no. Male, did you fuck your own obsession? Faith, I didn't do it. Male, this is all fucking her good, her description. Female, why? Male, you. Because it belongs to you. Fucking bullshit story. You personally. Female. I'm gonna kick your face, bitch. I figured out that's bullshit. Faith. Ow. Female. Mocking Faith. Ow. Your talk sure ain't funny. You know he's gonna. You and fuck you. I will fuck you, bitch. Faith is heard screaming. Female, mm-hmm. Faith, let me go, help me. Female, don't be a pussy, put up a fight. Male, let's put the fucking to her. Then you fuck her. I'll, I'll fuck her. Faith, ow, my head. Female, do it. Male, I think she's dying. Do it anyhow. Get the duct tape next to. They can tie up Faith. Faith. Please. Me. My hands are on fire. Help. Male. Put her hands behind her head. I'll untie them. Her hands look like they're on fire. I've got to hide them. Faith. I can't believe that you really did it, Rosie. Male to our next victim female alright male just throw it in the river fucking stupid people faith just wait male now here it sounds like the male is rapping somewhat loudly in order to possibly cover up the sounds of either crying or screaming or the commotion of what's going on because you don't want to me when the so I can use the baby and in the recording I do believe I've heard music but it's really really garbled female like you too rap 
the male still rapping. Go with me, go with me, like the way you want to be, because all this shit you lied about and call you bad. Rosie, I love you, please, now. Female, you're a liar. You intentionally lied. Male, hey, set that fuck back up, bitch. To go, liar. No way, idiot. Faith, get off me. Male, shut your mouth. Fuck, Rosie. Female, to go get help, Eric. Male, but I'll fuck her. Female, just let. Male, under her hips. Faith, fuck you. Male, back up. Faith, get off me. Male, I don't know. Faith, ow. Female, sit up. Faith, screaming, help. Male, rapping again. Because, seem to be the one, you. Female, fuck you. Male, now I'll fuck her. Faith, no. Male continues rapping. Female, what do you think, you? I liked you better, cunt. So, whatever this conversation means, whoever these people were and what was going on can only be speculated upon. Much of the conversation couldn't be deciphered, but it's pretty clear that some sort of verbal and physical confrontation is going on between Faith, as it was her phone that made the butt dial, one female, at least one other male, possibly two males. It seems like a very aggressive call, but it also seems like there are some things that aren't normally said, like the hands being on fire. That's really awkward, and it may not be actually what's being said. And the rapping does kind of sound like rap music is being played in the background, but Arlo West thinks it's one of the males on the voicemail doing the rapping. To me, it sounds like music, but it's so garbled, it's hard to be sure. But Chapel Hill police have largely dismissed the call as being related to Faith's murder because the timestamp places her alive and well at the Thrill nightclub. This, along with the metadata embedded in the call, all but confirms that this is a call that took place while she was at the thrill, and this is an altercation that took place prior to the murder and is not related to the case itself. But for Arlo West, he points to a known software issue with the kind of phone that Faith had that resulted in inaccurate timestamps. And he does not believe that the call took place at the thrill because his analysis of the call doesn't have any other sounds in the background associated with being in a nightclub like heavy bass, loud music, the sounds of people talking or glasses clinking, things that you might hear in the background from a call coming from a nightclub. The opinions of the voicemail remain sharply divided, but it's hard to overlook the fact that if you take the transcript for what it says, it sounds like Faith is having a violent confrontation, and she did die the same night. But the timestamp placed her at the club at the time that she sent out the call that left that voicemail. And she is clearly still alive, 
and seemingly doing just fine when she and Karina left the thrill at 2.06 a.m., a good half hour after the voicemail was left. And here is where that flub up with the surveillance video from the parking lot comes into play because we'll never know whatever took place outside in the parking lot following this phone call. So we've done some speculating up to this point about several individuals who were in Faith's circle of friends who may have had some reason to be upset or angry with either Faith or her roommate Karina or both of them. But the fact remains that everyone who has been tested against the DNA from the semen found at the scene has been eliminated as a match and that DNA is believed to belong to the killer. The DNA from the semen matches the DNA found on the Bacardi bottle, the note, and the pen that wrote the note. This was a very bloody and brutal murder. Faith's blood was spattered all over the room, but that is the only place in the apartment her blood was located. The killer did not track blood on anything anywhere else in the apartment. It was contained in the bedroom only. So the killer seemed to either try to be careful not to track any blood around anywhere else, or he cleaned up before exiting the apartment. It's one of the factors that leads investigators to think that the person who killed Faith was comfortable with being there. He did not feel in a hurry to leave, and was somebody known to Faith. The Chapel Hill police have not publicly named any suspects or persons of interest, but they have said that they do not believe it was a stranger that committed this crime, nor was it a crime of opportunity. Despite the fact that investigators are certain that the killer is someone known to Faith, they have interviewed no less than 2,000 people and have DNA tested almost 800 of them, and nobody has been a match. In 2017, a private investigator was hired by Faith's family and he believes that the killer is within one degree of separation of Faith's circle of friends, and that the killer could have attacked her out of anger towards her for something that Faith did to someone else. If this is the case, if this person who killed Faith is associated with someone in Faith's social circle, then it seems as though that this person has become a ghost, and nobody is talking. And that is hard to reconcile, because it seems as though people who were close to Faith loved her. Would her friends who had knowledge or information about her killer really keep this secret? Maybe. Out of fear. There are those who feel Karina Rosario is keeping secrets. There are those who feel that she is the Rosie that is referred to in the accidental voicemail, and that the Eric in the voicemail is her ex-boyfriend, against whom she had obtained that order of protection just weeks prior to Faith's murder. Eric Takoy Jones has a history and a pattern of violence against women, and he threatened Faith's life. And he felt it was because of Faith that his relationship with Karina ended. He broke into their apartment, and he did not mince words. He did not like Faith. Yet after she died, his actions raised some eyebrows. He spoke to news reporters and talked about what a great person Faith was. Yet, it was all well known that he did not feel this way about her. But then again, is he really going to get on the news and speak ill of Faith? Probably not. 
He also made some cryptic posts on his social media and sent text messages seeking forgiveness for what he's done. And that has you wondering, also. But his DNA wasn't at the scene. And since then, like many people associated with this case, Jones has completely stopped talking to anyone. Though investigators have said he's been, by and large, cooperative with the investigation. And they would say the same of Karina. We talked about her 911 call. And though I don't put much stock into what we think a 911 call should or shouldn't sound like, I am under the impression that she may know more than she's letting on based on some of the things that she said in her call. And she's definitely afraid of getting in trouble. And she is continuing to keep quiet, even now, more than six years later. And she's probably doing so out of self-preservation, either out of fear of getting in trouble with the law or getting in trouble with whoever she's keeping secrets for. She stands out to me because of her activity in the early morning hours of the day that Faith was murdered. She is the last known person to see Faith alive, aside from the killer. She conveniently removed herself from the scene, and not only that, admittedly left the front door of their apartment unlocked. And the person who picked her up, Jordan McCrary, he was also at the Thrill Nightclub that night as well, and he has refused to talk to police. He lawyered up, and he declined to submit his DNA for testing. So I found a theory on Reddit, and it kind of had me thinking. This theory states that Karina is the murderer, that it was a premeditated attack that she planned with Eric Takoy Jones and the former roommate of Brandon Edwards that we mentioned earlier the shady guy with the violent history. And he is the only other person aside from Jordan McCrary who has refused to submit DNA. And his handwriting had been examined from his rental agreement on that apartment with Brandon. And there are some similarities in his writing patterns and the writing on the note left at the crime scene. So the theory goes that Karina used Faith's phone to text Brandon Edwards to lure him to the apartment so he would find her body, but he didn't answer. This theory would have Karina and Brandon having an ongoing sexual relationship and that there was something that occurred between Faith and Brandon that caused Karina to become jealous of Faith and it could have possibly been her who wrote the note. Part of Karina's diabolical plan was to spend the afternoon and the evening with Faith, setting aside her anger and jealousy and going to the library to study and then going to the Thrill nightclub together. But remember, Faith left Karina at the library briefly, and it is speculated that she did so to meet up with the man. Then Faith came back to the library, the girls went back to the apartment, and then they went to the nightclub. This theory speculates that Karina became confrontational at the nightclub after having some drinks and directed her anger towards Faith and that they got into an argument. She then perhaps told some male friends of theirs that they saw at the club and these men sided with Karina, and this confrontation is what was picked up on the accidental butt dial voicemail that was heard. And there are names that can be deciphered from this call. Karina then could have had a moment of clarity and didn't want this argument to carry on in the club, and she decided she wanted to take this fight back home. So she told Faith that she wasn't feeling well, and soon after they left, going back to the apartment, where the timeline of events unfolded in the manner in which we've laid them out. 
with Karina conveniently removing herself from the scene where Faith would go on to be attacked and murdered. But if the call was time-stamped wrong based on time zones, then it was placed at 4.23 a.m. instead of 1.23 a.m., and this would place Karina and Faith back at their apartment, and the assault on Faith was taking place and was picked up on the voicemail. And because there is believed to have been more than one, perhaps two or three different men in the voicemail, and it's one of them who left the semen behind and remains unidentified to this day. The murder of Faith Hedgepeth is incredibly perplexing, and I can hardly think of another case that has so much, yet so little, going on. But if I had to guess, I'd be looking at one of the individuals who refused to give DNA samples and may have had a romantic interest in either Karina or Faith or both of them. There is a short list of individuals who remain suspicious. First off, Karina Rosario, and I've listed all the reasons why she's suspicious. Eric Decoy Jones, he's thought to have perhaps been an accessory. He's Karina's ex-boyfriend. He's threatened to kill Faith. He acted suspicious before and after the murder and he has a history of run-ins with the law and violent behavior. Brandon Edwards, Karina went to his apartment after the murder, and he perhaps knows more than what he's letting on. Brandon Edwards' former roommate, he's been known to be in trouble with the law, cases involving sexual assault, he refused to give DNA, and he has a serious history of violence against women. David Bell, also known to have been involved in some sexual assaults. He claimed to have come in contact with Faith the night that she died, and he's refused to give his DNA. He's lied to police, and he appeared sort of sheepish or ashamed when he was shown her picture. Reginald Leonard Jackson II. He's also been accused of sexual assault. He lives in South Carolina. He's tried to avoid police. He refused to give DNA to clear his name. He has a history of reckless behavior and citations, and he was texting Faith before the murder. Jacob Beatley. He's also been known to be involved in sexual assault. He lied about being home when phone records show that he was near the crime scene. He too refused to give DNA to clear his name. And Jordan McCrary. It is believed that he knows more than what he's letting on. It is believed that he helped Karina leave the crime scene. And he, too, never gave any DNA. And that, my dreamers, is the case of the unsolved murder of Faith Hedgepeth. This case has me completely stumped and confused. And I feel like I was all over the place with the story here. So if I rambled or got off track or overthought things, it's because I just don't know what to think. This one we are definitely going to need to talk about on social media as soon as I get this up for you. I will post pictures and some of the evidence in the case and we will discuss. There is currently a reward for information leading to an arrest in Faith's case. Anyone with any information is asked to call the tip line at area code 919 614-6363. If you would like to remain anonymous, you may contact the Chapel Hill Carborough UNC Crime Stoppers 
at 919-942-7515 or go to crimestoppers-chcunc.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for recommending the story for our vacation series, Dave Weir. I am looking forward to going back to California next week. And until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.